This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals who are interested in type 2 diabetes. Thank you for listening and welcome to the Diabetes in Primary Care podcast, bringing you medical information and nice guidance on the management of diabetes from a primary care perspective. My name is Fernando Florido and I am a GP in the United Kingdom with an interest in type 2 diabetes. You will be right in thinking, this is not his voice and you are obviously right. I am going to do a trial of using a computer voice to record this episode. If successful, it will enable me to produce content more efficiently and I hope that you will find it useful. Without further preamble, let's start this episode. In this episode we will be discussing the type 2 diabetes, prevention in people at high risk, that is guideline PH38. This guideline was first published on the 12th of July 2012 and it was last updated on the 15th of September 2017. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording and it has been collected directly from the NICE website. This podcast will focus on the clinical management rather than the administrative or commissioning considerations, which have been removed from this episode. This guideline covers how to identify adults at high risk of type 2 diabetes. It aims to remind practitioners that age is no barrier to being at high risk of, or developing, the condition. It also aims to help them provide those at high risk with an effective and appropriate intensive lifestyle change program to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. The recommendations in this guideline can be used alongside the NHS Health Check Program. Firstly, a risk assessment of the patient is required. General practitioners and other health professionals should implement a two-stage strategy to identify people at high risk of type 2 diabetes and those with undiagnosed type 2 diabetes. First, a risk assessment should be offered. Second, where necessary, a blood test should be offered to confirm whether people have type 2 diabetes or are at high risk. Also, service providers including pharmacists, managers of local health and community services and voluntary organizations and others should offer validated self-assessment questionnaires or validated web-based tools, for example, the one found on the Diabetes UK website. They should also provide the information needed to complete and interpret them. Public health, primary care and community services should publicize local opportunities for risk assessment and the benefits of preventing or delaying the onset of type 2 diabetes. The information should be up to date and provided in a variety of formats. It should also be tailored for different groups and communities. For example, by offering translation services and information in languages used locally. Where risk assessment is conducted by health professionals in NHS venues outside general practice, for example, in community pharmacies, the professionals involved should ensure the results are passed on to the person's GP. Then general practitioners should keep records of all risk assessment results to ensure appropriate follow-up and continuity of care. Where self-assessment is offered in community venues, health professionals and community practitioners should encourage people with an intermediate or high-risk score to visit their GP to discuss how to manage their risk. Those at high risk should be offered a blood test by their GP. Managers in primary and secondary healthcare should ensure staff actively seek out and offer risk assessments to people who might not realize they could be at high risk. We should encourage the following groups of people to have a risk assessment. All eligible adults aged 40 and above, except pregnant women. People aged 25 to 39 of South Asian, Chinese, African Caribbean, Black African and other high-risk Black and minority ethnic groups, except pregnant women. 
adults with conditions that increase the risk of type 2 diabetes. Particular conditions can increase the risk of type 2 diabetes. These include cardiovascular disease, hypertension, obesity, stroke, polycystic ovary syndrome, a history of gestational diabetes and mental health problems. People with learning disabilities and those attending accident and emergency, urgent medical admissions units, vascular and renal surgery units and ophthalmology departments may also be at high risk. In addition, NICE guideline on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease notes that it increases the risk of type 2 diabetes. We will need to explain to people why, even though they feel healthy, they can still be at risk of developing type 2 diabetes and also explain the implications of being at risk and that this can be reduced by making lifestyle changes. We should also tell people how and where they can be assessed, including at their GP surgery or community pharmacy. We should make people aware that they can use a validated self-assessment questionnaire or validated web-based tools, for example, the one found on the Diabetes UK website. We should also explain that those who are eligible can be assessed by the NHS Health Check Programme. This programme is for people aged 40 to 74 who are not on a disease register and have not, not been diagnosed with coronary heart disease, hypertension, AF, stroke, TIA, type 2 diabetes or kidney disease. They will be treated and managed using established healthcare pathways. People who are less likely to attend a GP surgery should be encouraged to go elsewhere for a risk assessment. Possibilities include community pharmacies, dental surgeries, NHS walk-in centers and opticians. Assessments may also be offered in community venues. We should also advise people with type 2 diabetes to encourage family members to have their risk assessed. There are two stages in the risk identification. In stage 1 general practitioners and other primary healthcare professionals should use a validated computer-based risk assessment tool to identify people on their practice register who may be at high risk of type 2 diabetes. The tool should use routinely available data from patients' electronic health records. If a computer-based risk assessment tool is not available, they should provide a validated self-assessment questionnaire, for example, the Diabetes Risk Score Assessment Tool. This is available to health professionals on request from Diabetes UK. General practitioners and other primary healthcare professionals should not exclude people from assessment, investigation or intervention on the basis of age, as everyone can reduce their risk, including people aged 75 years and over. Pharmacists, opticians, occupational health nurses and community leaders should offer a validated self-assessment questionnaire to adults aged 40 and over, people of South Asian and Chinese descent aged 25 to 39, and adults with conditions that increase the risk of type 2 di diabetes, other than pregnant women. Or they should tell people how to access specific, validated online self-assessment tools, such as the Diabetes Risk Score featured on the Diabetes UK website. Particular conditions can increase the risk of type 2 diabetes. We will repeat these again, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, obesity, stroke, polycystic ovary syndrome, a history of gestational diabetes and mental health problems. People with learning disabilities and those attending accident and emergency, urgent medical admissions units, vascular and renal surgery units and ophthalmology departments may also be at high risk. NICE guideline on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease notes that it increases the risk of type 2 diabetes.
Pharmacists, opticians, occupational health nurses and community leaders involved in risk assessment should advise people with a high-risk score to contact their GP or practice nurse for a blood test. The aim is to check if they have type 2 diabetes or to confirm their level of risk and discuss how to reduce it. All providers of risk assessment should discuss with those attending for a type 2 diabetes risk assessment how to prevent or delay the onset of the condition. This includes being more physically active, achieving and maintaining a healthy weight, eating less fat and eating more dietary fiber. They should also tell people where to get advice and support to maintain these lifestyle changes in the long term. In stage 2 of the risk identification process, trained healthcare professionals should offer venous blood tests, that is, either a fasting plasma glucose or an HbA1c to adults with high risk scores. They should also consider a blood test for those aged 25 and over of South Asian or Chinese descent whose body mass index or BMI is greater than 23. The aim is to determine the risk of progression to type 2 diabetes. For example, a fasting plasma glucose of 5.5 to 6.9 millimol per liter or an HbA1c level of 42 to 47 millimol per mole or 6 to 6.4% indicates high risk. Another aim is to identify possible type 2 diabetes by using fasting plasma glucose, HbA1c or an oral glucose tolerance test, according to World Health Organization, WHO, HbA1c criteria. We should also ensure that HbA1c tests, including point-of-care tests, conform to expert consensus reports on appropriate use and national quality specifications. When it comes to matching possible interventions to the identified risk the following will apply. For people at low risk, that is, those who have a low or intermediate risk score, we must tell the person that they are currently at low risk, which does not mean they are not at risk or that their risk will not increase in the future. We will offer them brief advice. As part of brief advice, we will discuss people's risk factors and how they could improve their lifestyle to reduce overall risk. We will offer encouragement and reassurance. We will offer verbal and written information about culturally appropriate local services and facilities that could help them change their lifestyle. Examples could include information or support to improve their diet, including details of any local markets offering cheap fruit and vegetables, increase their physical activity and reduce the amount of time spent being sedentary, including details about walking or other local physical activity groups and low-cost recreation facilities. The information should be provided in a range of formats and languages. Languages For people with a moderate risk, that is, a high-risk score, but with a fasting plasma glucose less than 5.5 millimol per liter or an HbA1c of less than 42 millimol per mole or 6% we will offer the following advice. We will tell the person that they are currently at moderate risk and their risks could increase in the future. We will need to explain that it is possible to reduce the risk. Briefly we will discuss their particular risk factors, identify which ones can be modified and discuss how they can achieve this by changing their lifestyle. We will also offer them a brief intervention to help them change their lifestyle, give information about services that use evidence-based behavior change techniques that could help them change, bearing in mind their risk profile. Services cited could include walking programs, slimming clubs or structured weight loss programs. We will discuss whether they would like to join a structured weight loss program. We will explain that this would involve an individual assessment and tailored advice about diet, physical activity and behavior change and we will let them know which local programs offer this support and where to find them.
Now, four people confirmed as being at high risk, that is, a high-risk score and fasting plasma glucose of 5.5 to 6.9 millimol per liter or an HbA1c of 42 to 47 millimol per mole or 6 to 6.4 percent we will do the following. We will tell the person they are currently at high risk but that this does not necessarily mean they will progress to type 2 diabetes. We will explain that the risk can be reduced and we will briefly discuss their particular risk factors, identify which ones can be modified and discuss how they can achieve this by changing their lifestyle. We will offer them a referral to a local, evidence-based, quality-assured intensive lifestyle change program and, in addition, we will give them details of where to obtain independent advice from health professionals. For People with possible type 2 diabetes, that is, a fasting plasma glucose of 7 millimol per liter or above, or an HbA1c of 48 millimol per mole or 6.5% or above, but no symptoms of type 2 diabetes, we will do the following. We will carry out a second blood test. If type 2 diabetes is confirmed, we will treat this in accordance with NICE guideline on managing type 2 diabetes. We must obviously ensure that the blood testing conforms to national quality specifications. If type 2 diabetes is not confirmed, we will offer them a referral to a local, quality-assured, intensive lifestyle change program. For people with a high-risk score who prefer not to have a blood test, or who do not use primary healthcare services, we must discuss the importance of early diagnosis to help reduce the risk of long-term complications. We will use our clinical judgment, based on the person's risk score, to decide whether to offer them a brief intervention or a referral to an intensive lifestyle change program. When it comes to reassessing the risk we will keep an up-to-date register of people's level of risk and introduce a recall system to contact and invite people for regular review, using the two-stage strategy. We will offer a reassessment based on the level of risk and we will use our clinical judgment to determine when someone might need to be reassessed more frequently, based on their combination of risk factors such as their body mass index, relevant illnesses or conditions, ethnicity and age. For people at low risk, that is, with a low or intermediate risk score, we will offer to reassess them at least every five years to match the timescales used by the NHS Health Check Program and we will use a validated risk assessment tool. Tool. For people at moderate risk, that is, a high-risk score, but with a fasting plasma glucose less than 5.5 millimol per liter, or an HbA1c less than 42 millimol per mole or 6%, we will offer to reassess them at least every three years. Finally, for people at high risk, that is, a high-risk score and a fasting plasma glucose of 5.5 to 6.9 millimol per liter, or an HbA1c of 42 to 47 millimol per mole or 6 to 6.4%, we will offer a blood test at least once a year, preferably using the same type of test. We will also offer to assess their weight or BMI. This includes people without symptoms of type 2 diabetes whose first blood test measured fasting plasma glucose at 7 millimol per liter or above, or an HbA1c of 48 millimol per mole or 6.5% or greater, but whose second blood test did not confirm a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. At least once a year, we will also review the lifestyle changes people at high risk have made using the review to help reinforce their dietary and physical activity goals, as well as checking their risk factors. The review could also provide an opportunity to help people restart their efforts if lifestyle changes have not been maintained. 
In terms of content, intensive lifestyle change programs should offer ongoing tailored advice, support and encouragement to help people undertake at least a level of physical activity that is in line with government recommendations, gradually lose weight to reach and maintain a BMI within the healthy range, increase their consumption of whole grains, vegetables and other foods that are high in dietary fiber, reduce the total amount of fat in their diet and eat less saturated fat. In these programs, established behavior change techniques should be used including at least all of the following. Information provision in order to raise awareness of the benefits of and types of lifestyle changes needed to achieve and maintain a healthy weight, building on what participants already know. Exploration and reinforcement of participants' re reasons for wanting to change and their confidence about making changes. This may include using motivational interviewing or similar techniques suitably adapted for use in groups. Goal setting or prompting participants to set achievable and personally relevant short and long-term goals, for example, to lose 5 to 10% of their weight in one year is a realistic initial target or to be more physically active. Action planning or prompting participants to produce action plans detailing what specific physical activity or eating behavior they intend to change and when, where and how this will happen. They should start with achievable and sustainable short-term goals and set graded tasks, starting with an easy task and gradually increasing the difficulty as they progress towards their goal. The aim is to move over time towards long-term, lifestyle change. Coping plans and relapse prevention, prompting participants to identify and find ways to overcome barriers to making permanent changes to their exercise and eating habits. This could include the use of strategies such as impulse control techniques to improve management of food cravings. Participants in intensive lifestyle change programs should be encouraged to involve a family member, friend or carer who can offer emotional, information, planning or other practical support to help them make the necessary changes. For example, they may be able to join the participant in physical activities, help them to plan changes, make or accept changes to the family's diet or free up the participant's time so they can take part in preventive activities. It may sometimes be appropriate to encourage the participant to get support from the whole family. Participants should be encouraged to use self-regulation techniques. This includes self-monitoring, for example, by weighing themselves or measuring their waist circumference or both. They should also review their progress towards achieving, achieving their goals, identify and find ways to solve problems and then revise their goals and action plans, where necessary. The aim is to encourage them to learn from experience. In terms of raising awareness of the importance of physical activity, we need to find out what people already know about the benefits of physical activity and the problems associated with a sedentary lifestyle. Where necessary, we will provide this information. In addition, we will explain that being more physically active can help reduce their risk of type 2 diabetes, even when that is the only lifestyle change they make. In cases where it is unrealistic to expect someone to meet the recommended minimum of physical activity, we should explain that even small increases in physical activity will be beneficial and can act as a basis for future improvements. We will need to encourage people to choose physical activities they enjoy or that fit easily within their daily lives. For example, they may choose to do specific activities such as walking, cycling, swimming, dancing or aerobics. Or they could build physical activity into their daily life, for example, by walking or cycling instead of using a car for short journeys, and by taking the stairs instead of the lift. We should encourage people to set short and long-term goals for example, on how far they walk or cycle, or the number or length of activities undertaken every week. 
In addition, we should encourage them to keep a record of their activity for example, by using a pedometer, and to record the things that make it easier or harder. In terms of weight management advice, we need to advise and encourage overweight and obese people to reduce their weight gradually by reducing their calorie intake. We need to explain that losing 5-10% to of their weight in one year is a realistic initial target that would help reduce their risk of type 2 diabetes and also lead to other, significant health benefits. We will motivate and support overweight and obese people to continue to lose weight until they have achieved and can maintain a BMI within the healthy range. For the general population, the healthy range is between 18.5 and 24.9. For people of South Asian or Chinese descent, the range is likely to be between 18.5 and 22.9. We should encourage people to check their weight and waist measurement periodically and we will offer a structured weight loss program to people with a BMI of 30 or more, or 27.5 or more if the person is of South Asian or Chinese origin. Alternatively, if more appropriate, we will offer them a referral to a dietitian or another appropriately trained health professional. We will need to ensure they are given a personal assessment and tailored advice about diet, physical activity and what techniques to use to help change their behavior. General practitioners should consider offering Orlistat, in conjunction with a low-fat diet, to help those who are unable to lose weight by lifestyle change alone. Finally, if these weight management interventions have been unsuccessful, we will need to refer people to a specialist obesity management service. In terms of dietary advice, we will provide the information explaining that increasing dietary fiber intake and reducing fat intake, particularly saturated fat, can help reduce the chances of developing type 2 diabetes. We will need to encourage people to Increase their consumption of foods that are high in fiber, such as whole grain bread and cereals, beans and lentils, vegetables and fruit. Choose foods that are lower in fat and saturated fat, for example, by replacing products high in saturated fat, such as butter, some margarines or coconut oil, with ver versions made with vegetable oils that are high in unsaturated fat, or using low-fat spreads. Choose skimmed or semi-skimmed milk and low-fat yogurts, instead of cream and full-fat milk and dairy products. Choose fish and lean meats instead of fatty meat and processed meat products, such as sausages and burgers. Grill, bake, poach or steam food instead of frying or roasting, for example, choose a baked potato instead of chips. Avoid food high in fat such as mayonnaise, chips, crisps, pastries, poppadoms and samosas. Choose fruit, unsalted nuts or low-fat yogurt as snacks instead of cakes, biscuits, Bombay mix or crisps. When it comes to helping vulnerable groups, we will need to provide up-to-date information in a variety of formats. This should be tailored for different groups and communities. For example, messages could be provided in a visual, braille or audio format. The services will also need to educate those involved in buying or preparing food in residential care, day centers and psychiatric units about what constitutes a healthy diet and how to prepare healthy meals. There are recommendations on metformin, which are as follows. We will use our clinical judgment on whether and when to offer metformin to support lifestyle change for people whose HbA1c or fasting plasma glucose blood test results have deteriorated if this has happened despite their participation in intensive lifestyle change programs or they are unable to participate in an intensive lifestyle change program, particularly if they have a BMI greater than 35. This recommendation is based on standard release metformin. 
Some standard or modified release metformin products have also extended their marketing authorizations to include reducing the risk or delaying the onset of type 2 diabetes in adults who are at high risk and are progressing towards type 2 diabetes despite intensive lifestyle changes for 3 to 6 months. In this respect, we will discuss with the person the potential benefits and limitations of taking metformin, taking into account their risk and the amount of effort needed to change their lifestyle to reduce that risk. We will need to explain that long-term lifestyle change can be more effective than drugs in preventing or delaying type 2 diabetes. We will need to encourage them to adopt a healthy diet and be as active as possible. Where appropriate, we will stress the added health and social benefits of physical activity, for example, point out that it helps reduce the risk of heart disease, improves mental health and can be a good way of making friends. We will also advise them that they might need to take metformin for the rest of their lives and inform them about possible side effects. We will check the person's renal function before starting treatment, and then twice yearly or more often if they are older or if deterioration is suspected. We will start with a low dose, for example, 500 mg once daily, and then increase gradually as tolerated, to 1,500 to 2,000 mg daily. If the person is intolerant of standard metformin consider using modified release metformin. We will prescribe metformin for 6 to 12 months initially, monitoring the person's fasting plasma glucose or HbA1c levels at 3 monthly intervals and stopping the drug if no effect is seen. There are also recommendations on Orlistat, which are as follows. We will use our clinical judgment on whether to offer Orlistat to people with a BMI of 28 or more, as part of an overall plan for managing obesity. We will take into account the person's risk and the level of weight loss and lifestyle change required to reduce this risk. We will also discuss the potential benefits and limitations of taking Orlistat and its side effects and advise the person to follow a low-fat diet that provides 30% of daily food energy as fat, distributed over three main meals a day. Ideally, we should offer information and regular support from a dietitian or another appropriate healthcare professional. We should also agree a weight loss goal with the person and regularly review it with them. We will need to review the use of Orlistat after 12 weeks. If the person has not lost at least 5% of their original body weight, we will use our clinical judgment to decide whether to stop the Orlistat. However, as with adults who have type 2 diabetes, those at high risk of the condition may lose weight more slowly than average, so less strict goals may be appropriate. We should use Orlistat for more than 12 months, usually for weight maintenance, only after discussing the potential benefits, limitations and side effects with the person concerned. This is the end of this episode of the Diabetes in Primary Care podcast. You can find it on your favorite podcast provider. You will also be able to find links to the guideline mentioned in the podcast description. Thank you for listening.